it's rolled around the 4 o'clock here by my watch on the East Coast time. So I think we're going to go ahead and get started. I have a few housekeeping notes, and we're having a little bit of problem connecting Andrew, so we're hoping we're going to be able to dial him in in a few minutes. But we will get rolling anyway. Um, so welcome again. My name is Rebecca Sanborn-Stone. I'm with the Orton Family Foundation, and this is a Community Matters Conference call on the Better Block Project. Community Matters calls are brought to you by the Orton Family Foundation and are an ongoing series designed to help people in their communities take charge of their futures and take action on the ground. We're very excited today to have Andrew Howard, who is a co-creator of the Better Block Project and is now with Team Better Block, working to help communities around the world run Better Block Projects on their own. We're also really excited to be joined by Lene Wells, planner at Williams & Works, an organizer of a Better Block project in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and Elena Tracer, a professor at the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts, whose college students organized the Eagle Street Rising Better Block project in North Adams, Massachusetts last spring. I'll let all three of them introduce themselves a little bit better and tell you more about the amazing work they do and are doing. But to start, I want to just go over a few call logistics. Since we have more than 100 people signed up to join our call today, it's really important that you all help us out with call quality. So I ask you again to place yourselves on mute right now, which you can do by pressing star six on your phone or a mute button on your own handset. This will help us cut down on background noise. And when it's time to open up the conversation and have people come off mute, we will give you instructions again about how to do that, but you can do it by pressing pound six. Sometimes we do have background noise, People don't always put themselves on mute. So if that happens, unfortunately, we will have to manually mute all of your lines. We'll give you notice when we do that. But that will make it difficult to have people come off again. So one last time, I'll put in a plea to have you all mute yourselves by pressing star six. For those of you new to Community Matters Conference calls, we have a live Google Doc going as well. You should have received a link to that in your email invitation. And we invite you all to open that up and join us and help take notes and capture today's conversation. So as our speakers are talking and the conversation proceeds, feel free to capture quotes, links, key ideas, anything that stands out to you from what you hear. You can also ask questions there if you have questions for our speakers. That's the main way we like to facilitate the conversation. And we encourage you to add your name so that I can call on you personally and, and have you ask your question on the line. We also, of course, invite you to add links, add resources, examples, tell us what you're working on, make comments, and just generally add to the conversation. This document will stay live after the call. So we'll have a living resource related to today's discussion, and we'll send that back around to you with a call follow-up email. You should be able to add to that document throughout the call. If there is any problem, though, we just invite you to hit refresh, and chances are you can get back in. The Google Doc can only handle 50 active editors at a time. So if you don't plan to be in there editing or typing anything, we'd ask you to close that out, give us the people a chance to time in, load it up, and then you can open it back up in about 30 seconds later. And finally, I just have a couple of really quick announcements before we begin. Um, mark your calendars for our next two calls in the Community Matters series. We're doing a two-part series in October and November on play and how it can help communities make better decisions, engage residents, and build stronger places. Our next call will be coming right up on Thursday, October 10th, so we'll see you back on the line in a couple of weeks followed by one on Thursday, November 14th. We'll be posting registration information very soon about those two calls. 
And last, I want to give a special shout-out and congratulations to the winners of last month's Successful Communities Contest, which we ran in conjunction with our August call. I know we have at least one of our winners on the line, Isaac in Middleborough, Kentucky. Sixteen communities held listening parties for that conference call and submitted ideas for actions they could take to make their communities stronger based on what they heard. So four communities won $500 each through online voting to help make that action happen on the ground. So congratulations again to Isaac in Middlesbrough, Kentucky, which is actually doing a better block project, Silverton, Oregon, Medfield, Massachusetts, and Mountain View, Arkansas. All the communities that participated had fantastic ideas. We wish them well making those ideas happen, and we invite you all to visit our blog and read more about them. So with that, I think we're going to get started. Let me see if Andrew has managed to connect yet. Andrew, are you with us? I'm here. Hello, everybody. Hey, hi. Welcome, Andrew. I'm going to pass it to you first, Andrew. So to everyone, this is Andrew Howard of Team Better Block. Andrew's going to give us a quick introduction to what this concept is and the work, and then we'll hear from Lene and Elena about some examples on the ground. So, Andrew, take it away. Thanks. So, we did the first Better Block here in Dallas, Texas in 2010, and uh, this was spread out of the idea. We were just... Uh, Tired of waiting on our city to repair some of our of our uh, neighborhoods, and uh, we thought, you know, if we can just demonstrate over a weekend in the special event process what it might look like if we had bike lanes and better cafe seating, and also places the bike can walk to, like kids' art studios and coffee shops and uh, uh, other destinations like that, we thought, well, you know, people may understand what we're talking about when we when we say we want to revitalize our neighborhood. So we did that over a weekend. Again, we're just trying to fix our own fix our own city, and uh, we subsequently did another one in September because we wanted to do one when it was really hot here in Dallas to show that uh, it wasn't just a uh, you know that Portland doesn't have the uh, Monopoly on walkable places, and uh, it worked. People actually walked and biked in Dallas in 100 degrees. And uh, shortly after that, my uh, business partner, Jason Roberts, and I both quit our jobs and started doing Team Better Block full-time and just sharing with uh, folks around around the world now how to put these on in their own city. And what we're focusing most on now is training folks on how to do them successfully and make them last. Make them uh, be, become part of the planning process, and not just sitting in meetings and uh, and uh, drawing pictures, but actually getting out and doing these things. And so, I think there's I've, I've lost count, but I think there's about 56 of them done in three or four different countries now, and um, we're just so happy that that folks are taking the idea and running with it. Okay, thanks so much, Andrew. We're going to have lots of time for questions as well. So if you do have questions for Andrew, what it's been like starting up Team Better Block and running the first Better Block projects, put those questions right into our Google Doc or save them for our question and answer period. I want to pass it now to Lene and Elena, who have done examples of Better Block projects on the ground in two very different communities, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and North Adams, Massachusetts. I'm going to ask them to talk a little bit about the specific projects they've run, and we have the benefit of their experience actually making this happen. Uh, Lene, could you tell us a little bit about your work in Grand Rapids? Sure. My name is Lene Wells. I'm an urban planning consultant in Grand Rapids, Michigan. 
Um, I was one of three organizers on a project we're calling, or we called Restate, uh, which was a Better Block initiative on a two-block corridor. So we did the corridor, not a not a square block, um, just outside of downtown Grand Rapids. The project included 19 different urban initiatives um, that we tackled, that we placed along the corridor and inside vacant buildings um, throughout the um, the street to educate participants and residents and business owners of the small-scale interventions that they could take to um, make their place and make their corridor better. Um, State Street is an interesting street. It's a historic street. It was an old Indian trail. Um, It's a gateway to downtown Grand Rapids, and it's um, bisected by two of our most active neighborhood associations. But it's also a dilapidated business corridor facing a lot of vacancy And we've had a lot of institutional uses around State Street that have torn down some of the older buildings. So we have a lot of uh, surface parking lots. And so what we wanted to do was demonstrate how these um, different initiatives could increase the vibrancy, the vitality, could infill these surface parking lots on a temporary basis and show how how there are better uses um, for corridors for streets than simply um, surface parking. Um, we all we kept the street open during the weekend of the event. Um, we partnered with the Grand Rapids Downtown Development Authority, which captures tax increment financing to reinvest in the public realm. Um, they gave us $15,000 towards the project, which we used for promotions, for building materials, for permitting, um, and for um, other other things that we needed. Um, none of us were paid. We were 100% volunteer. And during the course of the effort, I think we engaged at least like three uh, or 30 um, uh, core volunteers. And then we, of course, had people the day of the event that helped out as well. So um, it was a fantastic uh, weekend, and we've seen a lot of great implementation, permanent implementation of some of the projects that we showcased for the first time in Grand Rapids. So I'm happy to talk about some of that as our conversation continues. Thanks, Rebecca. Hey, thanks, Lene. Elena, do you want to tell us a little bit about your work in North Adams as well? Great. Yeah, uh, so great. Elena Tracer here. I'm a professor of environmental science at the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts uh, in North Adams. So we're in the northwestern corner of the state in an old mill town, small city in a fairly rural setting with a sort of growing arts-based economy. Um, And so this Better Block project um, was actually part of a, a seminar course that I teach uh, in the spring that's organized each spring around a student-chosen theme. And so the theme last spring was new urbanism. We called it uh, place-based prosperity. And I had two really excellent student TAs working with me. Um, we uh, um, were uh, introduced to the idea of tactical urbanism and better block projects as we uh, started thinking about uh, the service project that would go along um, with the the lecture series, and so we were fortunate to have more than a dozen leading uh, new urbanists speaking over the course of the semester, including Andrew Howard, um, who we mined for ideas about um, our project as we uh, planned it. Um, So our Better Block project was called Eagle Street Rising. It focused on 
one block, uh, historic Eagle Street in North Adams, sort of the one block that was left intact after urban renewal demo demolished most of uh, downtown. Um, but Eagle Street uh, has a lot of vacant storefronts. It's not very pedestrian friendly. Um, it's not a real uh, vibrant area. We, it just didn't seem to be fulfilling its potential as this really great uh, historic street in, in the, the downtown of this uh, city. So um, these uh, two student TAs really took on the brunt of organizing, coordinating about 15 other students, um, communicating with uh, stakeholders, city officials, um, college personnel, uh, community members. Um, and so uh, after months of planning and uh, uh, work day the prior weekend uh, and several hours of setup in the morning on uh, Saturday, uh, April 27th, uh, we unveiled Eagle Street Rising, which uh, included a modified street design. So we, uh, after setup, we did reopen the street, but um, we put out uh, tire uh, flower planters that narrowed the street to slow down traffic um, and uh, put in a new bus stop, uh, repainted a crosswalk, and added in a new crosswalk, both with uh, eagle themes um, along them, uh, in incorporating some of the artists in the area. Um, we uh, put in one new parklet and expanded a parklet, including benches and temporary trees, uh, had some cafe-style seating occupying a portion of the street where we uh, took up a few of the parking spaces, uh, put out a bicycle rack, uh, and had uh, several pop-up businesses, a, a cafe, um, a flower shop, a massage studio, and then uh, just uh, uh, spruced up the street with some hanging flower pots. Uh, and other um, small um, uh, uh, newspaper boxes, yarn decorations, um, and just spruced things up and uh, had a comment board for people to provide feedback. And uh, all the feedback was uh, extremely positive, uh, both from people who attended as well as in the press, as well as from the city and the college. Um, we had a great turnout. It was coordinated in conjunction with MCLA's Day of Service. We had students actually um, helping out throughout the whole city that morning, and they were all dropped off at Eagle Street Rising, um, where they were given vouchers uh, to have lunch at one of the uh, businesses on the street. Um, so we had a fantastic turnout, um, in part because of all those students and in part because of uh, uh, local residents that, that attended. Um, and we are seeing some new businesses now um, coming in where we had uh, vacant storefronts before. So um, we're uh, very, very pleased with the, the project overall. So thanks for having me on the call. Great. Thanks so much, Elena. To those of you who have just joined us, welcome. This is the Community Matters Conference call on Better Blocks today, and we've just heard a little bit from Andrew Howard, Lynne Wells, and Elena Tracer about Better Block projects in general and some specific ones they've run on the ground. So we're going to open it up and do some questions and answers right now. We've had a couple dozen questions come in over email and through our registration form, so I'm going to try to get to a few of those, and then we'll see what questions others of you listening in have. If you have just joined us, feel free to open up our Google Doc, help us take notes, add comments. You can answer questions there and ask any other questions you have for our speakers today. So let me start with one that several people have asked in different ways here. I'm guessing that most of you listening on the line today have, at the very least, a real interest in Better Blocks, if not a passion for it. Uh, whether or not it's the right fit for your community, you're at least intrigued enough to be spending an hour on the line with us today. 
I don't think we can say the same thing necessarily for all the people in our communities, whether they're government or property owners or business people or just the neighbors. So I want to ask all three of you to respond to a question about how we make the case for this kind of work in communities. How do you get long-term residents and governments on board with the concept of doing a better block project in the first place? And I'm also curious, where have you found the most resistance to the idea in the communities you've worked with? So, Andrew, let me start with you, since you've worked in so many different communities. Can you give us any insights on that? Sure. I'll, I'll start with the second one. Uh, there seems to be a, a correlation between resistance and affluence. So uh, we typically go to the bad part of town a little bit, and, uh, you know, the place that really needs a, a good fit shine, and we've had our best success there. So uh, we also we look for uh, we look for that champion, what I call the zealous nut, you know, just the, the person that is so passionate about revitalizing their neighborhood. And they've come everywhere from churches to skateboarders to uh, artists, you know, it's just, I look for that person, you know, if, if they're there and they really love a place and we're just giving them new tools of how to interact with their government and private property owners. And so uh, it usually is a small group of people, maybe even a person, that I, when I go to a city, I say, that's where we should go and that's where we should start. Great. And do you have any advice for how to really make the case when people are finding resistance or finding a community that's not particularly interested? Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think they need to be, you know, generated by the community. I, I think the ones that I've seen fail the most are when, like, a group of, like, young leaders or something just go pick a neighborhood out of the, out of the hat and do it there. You know, it's, it's really, it needs to be generated by in that neighborhood. So, uh, Right. I, I'm not. I don't think you can really just you know push it on somebody or a location. Very good advice there, um, Renee and Elena. How about you, Renee? Why don't we start with you in Michigan? Did you find resistance when you started planning for your Better Block project? And if so, how did you make the case to people who needed to be brought in? Yeah, I, th I feel like we were lucky in that we didn't have to make the case too strongly with the um, neighborhood. Um, we have pretty active neighborhood associations, and um, they had already been thinking about uh, doing a, a specific area plan for this corridor, um, but they had never really taken it to the next step of how to implement the plan, and that's always the challenge with any of our planning documents. And so it was introducing them to this way of undertaking this kind of incremental urbanism or this, this demonstration of what something could be. And we're finding that to make the case, um, just the fact that we have, um, just the fact that it's temporary helps with our um, case. You know, that let's just try something, you know, let's experiment, experiment, let's, you know, this is a low cost, low investment way to um, envision and experience the potential of a place. We can test it, we can refine it, and perhaps this is a better way to make long-term strategic decisions about investments because you've already tested the model to see how it works. Um, so that's kind of the 
you know, maybe that's a case in itself. That's great. Let me just make a quick announcement. We're hearing a little bit of background noise from someone, so please put yourselves on mute. Press star six on your phone so that we can let you off mute in a few minutes and talk to these guys. Um, Elena, how about you? What was your experience in North Adam? Yeah, um, I would say from the community, um, by and large, we didn't have resistance except for one property owner that owned a large chunk of um, the vacant storefronts on that street uh, that we really wanted to get some pop-up businesses in there and um, uh, just uh, had very pleasant conversations with them but didn't really get any headway in terms of actually getting agreement to get a, let us use any of that space, um, which was a disappointment, but the way that um, – the, the students figured out to get around that was to have uh, a street flower shop right uh, in front of one of those buildings. And so it looked like uh, there was a building, uh, a business, a pop-up right in there, even though we weren't actually accessing the property. Um, and I thought that was just a really great technique of, um, you know, uh, if you can't get into a property that you need uh, and there's a lot of, of space, you know, do something out front and it'll, it'll make it look like, like that business is alive. Um, the uh, only other bit of resistance that came about actually happened right on the day of the event, uh, which was sort of a surprise, and it came, uh, and now uh, in hindsight it makes a lot of sense, um, it came from um, the Director of, of Public Safety, where, who we had met with before to discuss the, the street design, um, and on paper everything looked fine, um, but when it actually came to setting up, um, you know, I mentioned that we um, narrowed the street, the idea being that uh, with some um, some flowers uh, and some tires that were uh, squeezing um, the, the street, narrowing the street, that would slow down the traffic um, because we wanted that uh, traffic calming to improve pedestrian experience on the street as well. Um, and uh, when the uh, uh, head of public safety saw that, he was concerned about uh, vehicles then being squeezed too much um, and you know, hitting people in the cafe uh, seating, which... Um, so that resulted in uh, some of the uh, flower pots being pushed back and, and therefore the, the traffic actually moving faster than uh, if um, we had gone with the original plan. Um, it, it wasn't a big deal, but it definitely made me realize that you know, more than you know, one uh, planning meeting, uh, sitting down with, with city officials, even if it seems that everyone is on the same page, um, kind of exploring these ideas a, a bit more in depth uh, can be helpful so that there aren't surprises on the day of. Um, but otherwise, I think the best way to get people on board is to uh, see if they're interested and then ask them to do specific things. Um, uh, I think the majority of volunteers are, are people that have been uh, specifically asked to participate and, and uh, invited to do specific tasks. That's great. We have a couple of questions about volunteers, which are pretty interesting ones. We have someone, Gary, from Florida, asking about the single most challenging aspect of securing widespread interest. We've heard a little bit from you about that. Um, we have a couple people asking about specific community segments as well, whether there's a unique role for retired people, and someone asking about whether there are ways to really bring youth into that. Andrew, you've seen a lot of Better Block projects work around the country and even around the world. Do you have any advice on how to attract volunteers in general, and then specifically whether there are roles for elder adults and for youth? Yeah, that's a great idea. Um you know, one of our first questions we ask people is, if you weren't doing what you were doing right now, what would you be doing? You know, what, kind of what's your dream job, you know, or what have you always wanted to 
to try, you know, and so a lot of the pop-up shops come out of there, you know, people are always, you know, people are like, I always wanted to, um, uh, you know, own a flower shop, and they're like, all right, well, let's try it out for a weekend, and then, um, you know, I think the joke in traffic engineering is that, like, everyone's a traffic engineer, everyone's got an idea of how to fix their street, and uh, so, you know, we're like, all right, let's make you a traffic engineer for the weekend, and let's... um, uh, you know, put you to work that way. So, I, you know, I try to not dictate a lot of, you know, where, you know, push volunteers in one direction. I try to give them, you know, a couple different teams that are out there and let them choose. Um, give them ownership of of parts of the project. So you're going to kind of let go and you have, have a lot of faith in these kind of projects that people are going to come through and, and uh, do what they're do what they're uh, supposed to do, and you know it just always seems to work out that the, you know the right people show up, and it usually is a small group, you know, 20 core people maybe, you know, and maybe 100 people might touch a project, but you know it's that small group that usually gets things done. That that Margaret Mead quote, you know, of uh, uh, you know the power of a, of a small group of people to get something done. Um, what was the other question? About volunteers, uh, oh, oh, uh, elderly. You know, you know that was um, one of our, our first projects. Actually, we had um, the lady on the corner. She was like a cat lady, you know, and she was the one that like you never saw that much, you know. And, and you kind of thought, man, what is this lady going to do? And we just like you know pop up this street next to us, and we're about halfway through our setup, and she comes walking out, and this is in 2010, and walks down to us. And she goes, I don't know what y'all are doing, but I love it. Here's $100. Put me to work. And we're like, oh, wow. my gosh, this lady is awesome, you know. And so we, like, put her to work in the coffee shop, and she was serving coffee, and she was just chatting it up. And now she is one of our biggest advocates in Dallas for bicycling. And she started biking right after that, you know. And so it's like, don't ever, like, you know, count anybody out. Um, there's something for everybody in a, in a project like the Better Block. That's great. Any advice for tapping into youth as well? Uh, yeah, they've got small hands, so they're really good at, you know, getting into those. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we've done some of that before. You know, um, we typically try to give them, you know, their, their own space. Uh, we've done murals with kids where we'll, you know, lay out different sections that they can – uh, they can paint in. Um, you know, I, I like to give them kind of a traffic 101. We usually don't have them working in the street, but I'll, I'll you know, do the basics with them of, of traffic control. Um, you have more liability, I think, when you're when you're working with youth, you know, than than with adults, because you got to get, uh, you know, I would get waivers from their family, you know, if you're going to have them working in a live street or going to have them, you know, operating any kind of equipment, so, um, but, you know, the best way, I think, to learn how to use math and run your own business is to run your own business, so we had a kid in our last project, he was 15 or 16, and him and his mom ran the coffee shop, and it was awesome, you know, and he's, like, doing the accounting at the end of the day and, you know, showing how much profit they made, so, uh, you know, hands-on application of what you're supposed to learn in school. 
Yeah, that's a great suggestion. It reminds me of Bitterford, Maine, which ran a youth pop-up competition around Christmas time several years ago through their high school and tried to fill up a couple of empty storefronts and just tried to to see which high school students would have the best ideas, and I think they ended up with some really successful businesses out of it. Um, Renee, how about you? Can you speak a little bit to the experience of working with volunteers in Grand Rapids? Um, have you attracted people, and specifically whether you have any experience bringing elderly people or youth into the project? Talk about that. Yeah, we used um, Facebook. So that was our main um, outlet uh social media outlet, and that, of course, attracted a certain segment of the population. And um, our biggest challenge is we had so many people interested in wanting to help that between our the three of us, we had a hard time scheduling the volunteers and plugging them in at the right times. Um, you know, we didn't want to turn anyone away, but the the project was constantly sort of evolving up until maybe three weeks before the event when we finally said, okay, guys, you know, we love all the idea generation. Even the team members, you know, had tons of ideas, and we kept changing things or adding things to the slate of projects we wanted to try. And we finally just had to cut it off and say, okay, this is all we can handle. We need to start, we need to decide where we're going to put them on the corridor, what makes the most sense from a design standpoint. Um, We need to get all our publications ready and we need to plug the volunteers in. So um, there was a bit of a challenge that way because you, you just at some point have to say, okay, we're, we're done now. We're just going to start executing and producing. Um, we divided up into three key topic areas, um, the three main organizers. So we had one of us was doing the planning, placemaking. One person was doing promotions, and then one person was doing programming. Um, programming dealt with all the different events. Uh, we had yoga in the park. We had a Bruin view. We had um, Zumba. We had um, a beer garden, and we had infill um, pop-up shops and vacant buildings. So they did all the programming. The planning person did all of the streetscape, everything in the public realm, and then promotions handled our logo and our Facebook and getting the word out. And so. We um, each uh, interfaced with the neighborhood organization as well as other kind of urban zealots, those zealot nuts that Andrew mentioned, in the community and invited people to come to those regular committee meetings and essentially offered them the opportunity to decide on projects that they wanted to see. Um, So we had volunteers that headed up their specific, you know, urban intervention. We had someone who built a lending library at the bus stop. We had someone who organized uh, the bike share program and bike valet and and bike education component. We had someone who um, did a rain garden. We had someone who did an urban um, container garden. So um, like Andrew said, we just let it we we let the the individuals the the people who were interested kind of decide what they thought was best um the real stakeholders and um and again some turned out the way that we would have envisioned some didn't but at the end of the day it really didn't matter you know you really kind of just appreciate people's energy and their interest and um the the result the project in its entirety so 
with kids, we um, partnered with um, nonprofit organizations. Um, we partnered with Friends of Grand Rapids Parks, and they helped us purchase a um, a work yard, which is sort of a, an adult size erector set. Well, it's a kid size mm-hmm. erector set, and we had that in one of the parks. We also um, linked this event with other community activities happening that day. There was a historic home tour, and there was a community-wide park cleanup that happened, and we had a park as one of the um, anchors of this corridor. And so the Friends of Grand Rapids Parks brought out um, a cadre of their volunteers and had um, activities focused around kids. Um, in terms of the retired population, um, you know, a lot of times there are people in the community that are really good at building, and we had a lot of needs when it came to building parklets, and, um, you know, we tried to reach out to that group, and we had limited success. So um, I think that's an opportunity for the future. Great. Thanks. So we have a lot of questions in our Google Doc today asking about specifics. I'm sensing there are a bunch of people on the line who are either trying to organize these projects now or thinking seriously about it. So I want to do a little rapid-fire round of questioning here, put you all on the spot for some specifics and just really quick answers, and we can get some details out to people on this. So let me start with Elena. I know you've already told us a little bit of this, but we'll just cover some of that ground again. So your project lasted how many days? It was just one afternoon. Okay, and one block, you said? Yep, one block, one Saturday afternoon. Yep. Great. And about how much would you say your budget was to put on the whole event? Oh, we spent um, less than $1,000. Great. And how many volunteers did you have engaged in the whole thing? Um, uh, let's see, we had two student TAs, 15 students, uh a couple others showed up for our um, day of building it, uh, our community build day, and then the day of there were probably uh, a couple dozen people that um, helped set things up. Great. So what would you say the most successful interventions or smaller projects were? Um, people were really excited about the cafe-style seating and um the effect that that had on really transforming the streets, being much more uh, lively and pedestrian friendly, um, where you know people were, they felt like they were, you know, hanging out and chatting and eating and um, in a space that you know previously was just kind of a tunnel for cars to zip through. So it, it had a major um, effect on how that street functioned. Great. Anything that you would say didn't work very well? Um, one of our pop-up shots did not get as much uh, traffic as we had hoped, and we're really not quite sure why. Um, the massage pop-up that had um, uh, very affordable um, short uh, chair massages uh, just didn't attract a lot of attention, so I don't know if it was how it was sold or with the population. Um, but, yeah, that was, that was one thing that uh, didn't attract as much attention as we had thought. Great. And someone else is asking a little bit about outcomes. Can you point to any specific outcomes or anything you tested out in this project that has become permanent? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and uh, as a scientist, I always like to have data. And uh, I, I don't have real hard data. Um, what I can say is that, you know, the last time I drove down Eagle Street, there were 
three new businesses um, that opened up uh, in what previously had been unoccupied spaces. So if that's a result of our project, that'd be great. Um, I, I don't know if that would have happened uh, otherwise. Um, and we've been in, uh, we've you know communicated uh, our uh, ideas to the city, uh, you know, both uh, receiving from them ideas as part of their long-term planning, trying to incorporate some of those uh, into our project, but then also providing them with a report and sort of summary of um, uh, suggestions uh, so that, you know, that can again go into their, their planning. Great. Thanks. So, Lene, let me turn to you, and I'll ask you the same series of questions, and then we'll go to Andrew and see if he can summarize several projects or give us a range. Um, so, Lene, how long was your event again? Two days. And the we, you were we went in? from I'm sorry, nine to nine. <laughs> okay, on two days. And how big was the space you were working in? I know you said it was a corridor. Yeah, we had about, um, I think it was about 1,100 feet of linear feet. Um, so it was two blocks, um, but the the corridor in between, the street in between. Great. And how many people total would you say were involved in making that happen? We had three organizers. We had, um, I'd say, 30 core participants in terms of our, our core volunteers that helped staff these committees. And then we had, um, I think, around a 1,000 or more people who participated during that weekend. Great. What would you say was the single most successful intervention or small project? Well, the parklets, I think, were the single most successful. Um, we tested out two types of parklets. So one of them was attached to and in front of an existing pizza place. Um, so it served as an extension of their indoor seating. And then we tested out a parklet that was more of kind of the natural uh, parklet, more of an extension of a park, say. So it, it wasn't connected to any business. Um, since those parklets were tested, our uh, downtown development authority has modified their uh, streetscape grant program to include parklets. Um, so there's funding up to, I think, $20,000 for the construction of parklets in downtown Grand Rapids. So this was a, a catalyst for that, that uh, grant project. Great. We, yeah. I'm sorry, were you going to go on? Oh, we, um, we also have been looking as a city, we, we broke some ordinances. You know, one of our main objectives was to educate the public about how sometimes our local ordinances don't match the vision. You know, policy doesn't always match the vision for what we want for a better city. And so we broke some rules, and one of them was food trucks. And um, we had a food truck pod, and um, since seeing the sort of success of that, our city is revisiting the food truck ordinance. And um, we recently just had one um, entity, the the art museum get approved to do a food truck pod, the first one in our city. Um, and the, the um, Downtown Development Authority has also begun a um, Movies in the Park project, which was the first time that we've ever allowed um, alcohol open container <laughs> and, um, and also the first movie series that we've ever had. And 
um, we had a movie, a, a brew in view, so a, a movie and, and beer um, uh, project as part of Better Block. So, again, that was a, a, one of the test cases for something that has become a, a permanent amenity in our city. Is that anything that works very well? Yeah, we uh, we probably next year would o we're only going to do it one day. Um, Sunday was not very well attended, um, or we'll try to publicize Sunday better. But we had a lot of activities on Saturday, and people didn't commit to doing it on Sunday, so we had less happening anyway that day, and so I think it resulted in fewer participants overall. And then the other thing I would do different is rent um, or have, if you are going to do it two days, have security the night overnight um, because we moved a lot of things out of the street and we moved a lot of the, um, you know, different demonstrations that we had and, and we didn't want to leave them up overnight for fear of vandalism. So um, we thought, well, in the future, we'd maybe try to find money to hire security so we didn't have to go through all that. Um, right. I mean, that's a lot of li heavy lifting. Yeah, wonderful. And I know you just shared some really impressive outcomes that have resulted. Anything else happening or anything that's become permanent? Um, well, we had a tr we we had we partnered with our transit authority, and we did a training bus where we had a bus parked in a parking lot, so it helped fill that building wall where we had surface parking. And um, I've seen our transit authority now have training buses at different events in the city. So, again, I think we're just learning to collaborate more, learning to find partnerships with these um, entities that exist in, in the community. And um, overall, I think we're kind of moving in, in lockstep as a community towards building uh, building a quality place. Great. And I did forget to ask you, what was your total project budget as well? Yeah, so our total budget was um, around $20,000. Um, some of that was in-kind. All the time that I spent was in-kind. Um, and, and the other organizers, and then we had $15,000 of cash um, from the Downtown Development Authority. So, Andrew, let me talk this to you as well, and you can choose whether you want to answer for the work you've done in Dallas or whether you want to try to extrapolate some projects across the country, which I know might be a little bit hard, but uh, I can see you've been answering away here in the Google Doc as well. What do you think is the average length or ideal length for a project? Yeah, keep it small. So uh, one block, two to four hundred feet. Um, you know, you might bleed it over into two blocks if you're trying to connect. You know, a place that's already active with one that needs to be active. Um, the reason we do that is uh, again, it's, it's all it's all about human environment. Just think of those, that really cool cafe that you visited in Paris on your vacation. It wasn't huge. It was small. You know, and so most. Places of character are, aren't that big, and uh, we tend to kind of default to making everything bigger here in America. Um, that also gets you the ability to really highlight all your assets in a really tight location. So even when you're doing public space activation, I always say whatever space you think you need, take half of it and try to cram uh, you know, those activation points all into a smaller area. 
So definitely think small. Um, what was uh, some of the other, you may answer some of those other ones there too? Um, yeah. How about budget ranges that you see for projects? What do you think is the minimum amount of money a project needs to be successful, and what's the high end that some communities are using? Yeah. Uh, so a lot of ones that I'm seeing, you know, that are that are, I would say, you know, starter better blocks. You know, people just like, gosh, I'm in, you know, uh, uh, in this town where there's not much, you know, we want to advance planning. We don't have the eye or the ear of the city manager or the mayor, let's just do it all on our own. And folks are doing it for, you know, less than a thousand dollars. They're getting a special event permit, which are anywhere from fifty to two hundred dollars in your city. And um they're doing it all on their own. And these ones that, you know, you're seeing like um that are, are more ingrained in the planning process that have a result, um a, you know, a, an exact result. Are, are 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 on the same par as what a master plan might cost the city. So, you know, some... Oops, I'm sorry, folks, if you can hear me, it seems like we're having a little bit of trouble with our lines. Andrew, are you still with us? Yeah, I'm still here. Okay, go ahead. So, yeah, so if, uh, like, we just did one in Norfolk, Virginia, it was about $40,000, which is comparable to uh, a master planning process. Again, same process, a lot of volunteer, but it acted as the benchmark in the master planning process. So it was, they had a vision for an arts district. We did the better block, and then we started working on the zoning, and council changed the zoning within two months. Um, we started working on the private sector, and buildings sold within a couple months, and now there's an incentive package in place so um, to, to get more business to come there. So uh, a lot of the... Uh, you know, the better block is just the actual event day is really a small part of the real change that can come from a better block. And keeping the momentum is where I think a lot of communities are, are sending their funds. So they're, they're using the better block as the public meeting for this is a new, you know, this, this can be a new uh, destination. And then they're putting the money into changing the zoning, putting incentive packages in place, and making the, the change permanent. Right. So we have just a little bit over 10 minutes left. I want to see if there are other questions on the line that we haven't been able to get to. I know there are more in the Google Doc, and we've had some folks typing in answers. So please feel free to do that as well. Everyone who's listening, you're welcome to go in and add your own answers here. But if you are listening and you have a question that we haven't covered yet today, I want to invite you to take yourself off mute and ask our team here. You can press star six on your phone. Does anyone have a question? Give it another second. Anyone else want to weigh in? Or otherwise, I have a couple more that we can ask. Hi, my name is Kristen. I'm calling from uh, Grand Marais, Minnesota. And I'd like to ask a question if there are any examples you can speak to that have been done in a really rural setting, like not necessarily even a town center or a town center that's very small with, you know, with very little development there. Andrew, why don't we start with you and see if you have any examples to share? Sure. You can make any place better. <laughs> uh, I, I really like the comment earlier about, you know, a lot of these things, is just, it's just transparent.
transfer of energy, you know, it's just a, us getting in a place, not talking about it in the town hall, but going directly to the location and having an intervention about it, that changes things. So I think it applies anywhere. Anywhere that you can gather a good group of people and do something good, it's going to result in, in something. Um, the smallest town I've seen working, I think it's St. Joe, Missouri, and that one's about 5,000 people. And they started like three or four businesses after the Better Block, and they, I think they've done two or three now. And so um, I, I think it definitely has an application in rural areas. Uh, the one thing that I've seen that happen a lot in rural areas is, you know, small town, everybody knows everybody, and a lot of times people get stuck in a rut. They're the curmudgeon, you know, and it's like, how do I get out of this curmudgeon role? I've been in this curmudgeon role for 25 years. Most people don't want to be like that, you know, and when you do a better block, it's like a reset. And suddenly those people are, I think they're seeing it as a different opportunity, a chance. And whenever you're asking people of something to borrow or to do something temporary, I think it gives them the ability to, to, to change a little bit. And everyone likes to help each other. I mean, down, deep, below. So, you know, if you've got that person that owns half your town center but has always been a curmudgeon, I think it's a great opportunity to try and switch that role and, you know, just go to them with uh, an idea of borrowing. And most people will uh, will uh, will be accepting of it. Great. Thanks, Andrew. Linnea, Elena, do either of you happen to know of any other examples? I don't, no. I don't either. But, great. I know the Better Block website maintains a map of communities, so we can always put a link in there, too, but I'm sure Andrew can give us the best advice on the phone. It does remind me of a call we hosted a couple of years ago on do-it-yourself community, which covered some similar topics, and there certainly was a question and some discussion on there about how rural communities and communities without a distinct town center can implement some of these. So we will also include a link to that call recording if anyone wants to go back and listen. Let's see if we have any other questions. We do have five more minutes or so. Anyone else on the line? I have a question. Oh. Yes. Hi, my name is Jennifer Bryan. I'm calling from Washington, D.C. I asked a question about how you go about securing an unoccupied commercial space, and I see someone um, replied on the Google Doc that you're doing them a favor by showing off their property, so show them how better bought projects have re resulted in sales and leases. But when you say them, are you do you go directly to realtors or real estate? Who Who is it that you're approaching? Um, when we did it, we. Oh. oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Lene. Yeah, please. I mean, I, I'm sure Andrew can answer too. We went right to the realtors that were um, leasing the property, and um, similar to that comment on there, they found it as a great opportunity to showcase the um, the property and activate it for a weekend and really show the potential that it could have. So we had keys to two of the vacant buildings on our corridor for a month of the uh, leading up to the event. So we could um, stage them. Uh, one of the buildings was contaminated, so we had to do some cleaning. And um, it, we, we found that they were very um, happy to work with us. So it would be going to the realtor um, that was listing the property. 
And when we did this in North Adams, uh, we uh, either went to City Hall or uh, one of the benefits of working in a small community is uh, often people just know uh, who owns the building and who uh, to talk to and how to get their phone number. Uh, just you know, ask the property owner directly. And uh, yeah, one, one building that was in good shape, we could just uh, get access to that morning and uh, another that uh, needed a bit more cleanup. We also had uh, keys to for a while so we could um, get it into shape before uh, our event. I second that. Go to the realtor. Go to the realtors first. Um, they actually have an initiative, placemaking initiative in place that calls out the Better Block as one of their tools, and uh, it's, it's definitely, uh, you know, in their wheelhouse to do that kind of negotiation for you and uh, and get you in there. So find out, you know, who's repping it, or if there's not a rep for it, uh, you know, call the uh, local chapter of the National Association of Realtors. They've also got a grant in place called the Smart Growth Grant that uh, actually the deadline's in a couple weeks, but they are helping fund some better blocks uh, in the United States right now. So look them up. Great. Anyone else? I think we have time for one or two more questions. Let's talk with one. We did have an interesting question on here from Isaac, which I'll bring up. Isaac, are you still on the line with us? Maybe not. So let me just ask this one off. Isaac says there's an intersection between better block and preservation planning for communities suggested in a recent Columbia University graduate thesis. He's wondering to what extent this has been experimented with in past events or when or whether it will be part of any future ones. Did any of you work in partnerships with preservation organizations, historic organizations, or do you see that as a fruitful area for partnerships? Yeah, North Adams, we did not. Um, we didn't work directly with um, a preservation organization, but the neighborhood that encompasses um, a portion of State Street is Heritage Hill. Um, it's a historic uh, residential district, and um, so we worked closely with with them in terms of, you know, outreach and, and linking this activity to their historic home tour, but um, that would be the only connection that we had with the preservation community. Right. Yeah, this is Andrew. We've uh, we've we've worked alongside him before. There's there's lots of folks that do tour of vacant properties already as part of their uh, uh, reservation, just to get people knowledgeable about you know what properties are out there. And our whole thing with getting pop ups in there and then continually trying to you know get the place occupied is that a the best way to preserve a building is to have it function, have it have it uh, occupied. And so a lot of the problem with getting uh, spaces occupied that were historic was that you couldn't bring them up the code. And so we used the better block to break some rules and test the code and say, you know, why why do these codes apply across the board? Yeah, it makes sense for new construction, but we need some flexibility in some of these preservation laws. And so we've been able to... to, uh, uh, loosen those up by just getting in there and testing things out. Now, we always walk it with the fire marshal and with the building inspector. We want these places to not fall in on us while we're doing the project. But 
once we get in there and we see how it's functioning, we show them how, you know, the building can be used in this manner, we've got fuel to then go to planning commission and council and say, you know, we need to loosen these rules up a little bit. I guess the double-edged sword on that, too, is sometimes preservation districts set some really high standards for reconstruction and even down to, like, colors, you know, of what you can paint a building. And I think uh, we, we've tried to demonstrate a few times that, that there needs to be some leniency in those as well, that, uh, you know, if, if we're going to um, fit these older buildings into the new economy, that um, they, they need to, to have some uh, some modern touches to them. So, yeah. Definitely work with those folks. <laughs> Andrew, you definitely hinted at something that I'm sure I heard Lene talk about as well, and maybe even Elena. We have a question here about it as well, which may be a, a good note to end on before we close the call today. Um, it seems to be a fine dance sometimes between when a better block project follows all the rules and when it's sometimes okay to break them, even in the interest of showing sometimes how certain rules and regulations do not create the communities that we want to have. How did all three of you navigate that tension? When do you want to follow the rules and go through the official channels, and when is it okay to be a little bit guerrilla in your efforts? Yeah, this is Andrew. Anyone? Um, gosh, I, I just, you know, we, our first one was aimed at breaking a number of zoning rules that were on the books from, like, 1941, and, uh, you know, when you get that, we use a special event permit process, which almost gives you carte blanche in a lot of cities, you know. It's like, yeah, you can do anything for a weekend, you know. We'll look over that stuff as long as it's safe, you know. And so that's why I always get the building inspector to go out there with me and the fire marshal, you know, to walk around. And, you know, usually they'll point out a few things that you need to make make sure of. But, you know, those we have a lot of laws in the books that were written for a different time period, written for a different economy. And, um you know, a great way to to battle them is, is by demonstrating in it. So that's in Norfolk, Virginia, where we just completed a project, um, and we changed the zoning rules a lot. I mean, we had a place that was, I think it was a, it used to be a car dealer. You know, it had a great form, though. It was a building right up to the street, but it used to be a car dealer. So it was like 15, 20,000 square foot, and you're like, what are you supposed to do with that? You can't put another car dealer in it. They're not going there. There's only so many furniture stores that can go in there. And so these folks invented basically like an indoor flea market that had a beer garden that also had a paint or a, a, a t-shirt manufacturer, and then in the back it had a skateboard shop, you know. And it's like, how do you zone that? They had to create a new category for it, you know, and they permitted it, and they got it through, and it's up and running there, and it's doing great. And so if we hadn't demonstrated that and we hadn't shown that it's okay, you know, that the parking is going to work out, that, you know, noise is going to be okay, I don't think we'd ever got off the planning table. So uh, you know, identify those rules in your area that are that are holding back your community, and try it out over a weekend. I, I don't think you're, I don't think you're doing anything wrong. You're not, you're not a, you, you know, you're not committing a sin. You're, you're, you're doing a, a justice for your community. Right. Elena or Lene, do you want to add anything? Yeah, um, it, for us, I guess it was it was fairly easy be, because uh, the community is generally really supportive of um, uh, trying new things to try to better the community, and so it was quite easy for us to go to the uh, city hall and the, the tourism folks and say, what do we need to do to have an event? And they they gave us a checklist, and we're really 
happy to support us. And so it was important for us to, you know, keep them involved and, and to work with them rather than against them since, uh, you know, they were they were really supportive of what we were doing. So it, it seems to me that the, the first step is really to, um, uh, you know, if, if, if you're likely to get support, uh, you know, you should really uh, be be pursuing that route. And then, um, yeah, certainly in, in other scenarios and, and in maybe in other communities um, where it's more difficult to get that initial support, it makes more sense to kind of go renegade <laughs> um, to, to try to get something done. Um, we worked early, early on with our city. They have a design review committee that's comprised of the engineers and um, planning staff and, and building permitting staff. And so we sat down and, and met with them at one of their regularly scheduled meetings and showed them the preferred cross-section that we had um, identified for State Street and talked through all the different permitting processes and um and let them know right away that we were you know intending to break some some of the rules and try some things out um and i think just having the conversation with them helped them um understand that we weren't going to you know we weren't going to do anything that would endanger any citizens um and i think they're looking for ways that they can modify their own regulations and better match like I said, their planning and the vision we have for our city with the policies that exist. You know, I write a lot of zoning ordinances, and I know we don't always get it right. And it takes, like, actually going out into the streets and experiencing the place and walking the places and biking those places to be able to see where um, those um, differences lie and then be able to, to tackle that and demonstrate corrective action. Great. Thanks. So by my clock, we have rolled around to 5 o'clock Eastern. We'd love to get you all out of here on time and get on with your community building, that block building. So before we close, I want to give a huge thank you to Lene and Elena and Andrew for joining us on the line for all their wisdom and their fantastic work. It's just been really enlightening. And to all of you joining us as well, thank you for being on the line, and we wish you the best of your work. We are going to close with one more really quick question here, so don't leave us yet. And we hope to talk to you next month on our call on play as well. So to close out today, I'm going to ask Andrew and Elena and Lene to leave us with really just one sentence or a quick phrase for everybody hanging up the phone in about one minute here. If they are thinking about doing a Better Block project in their community, haven't totally started planning yet, what's the number one thing they should do to get started today? Best advice. Anyone want to jump in? Uh, Set a Okay. Uh, I'd say uh, go walk the block and uh, just start imagining. Great suggestion. Andrew? Uh, set a date, make a poster, and publish it. You're going to con yourself into doing it. <laughs> Great. And I, I was going to say get out and walk it, too. So I'll, I'll say, you know, start your social media and, and start getting your uh, – team together, knock on the doors, and, and engage the people who live and work where you want to do your project. Great. Fantastic advice from all three of you. So there you have it, folks. You have three suggestions. You have homework, so go out and get started. And thank you all so much for joining us today. Thank you again to Andrew and Lene and Elena, and have a fantastic evening. <laughs>